good morning. If you could turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3 in your Bibles, please. Very thankful to be here. Uh, last time I was here preaching, we, our two oldest children were not here, so they're here today. If you are able to introduce yourself after the service, Brianna and Austin are here. Um, and I haven't embarrassed them recently, so I figured I would say their names in front of everyone. <laughs> First John chapter 3. A few weeks ago, uh, my family and I had a movie night. We do that from time to time. I'm sure your family does the same. And uh, we decided on the 2016 remake of the 1977 classic, Pete's Dragon. How many of you have seen this, the newer version of this movie? Okay. How many of you saw the first one? Okay. I, I don't remember anything about the first version of this movie, but I can tell you that the more recent version... Uh, in, in the beginning, the, a young boy by the name of Pete, good, want to make sure you're awake, is traveling with his parents. He's in the back seat of the car. They're traveling along a mountain road in what appears to be the Pacific Northwest. His father swerves to avoid hitting a deer, and they get into an accident. His parents are killed. So Pete's left alone in the middle of nowhere. And in the aftermath of the accident, young Pete is the only one left alive. He's the only one around for miles. And as the twilight fades, Pete is about to be attacked by a pack of wolves. He rushes into the forest, and he sees a dragon. That's why they call it Pete's Dragon. <laughs> and uh, the rest of the story shows how Pete survived in the forest with his friendly dragon. It's later discovered by... Uh, a nice family reintroduced into society, and of course the people uh, see the dragon, and there's all sorts of drama about that. And, and this really isn't the point of the movie, but can you imagine if you left here this morning or, or this afternoon, and uh, I know it's raining today, but imagine it's not raining, you go and you decide, I, I have some time to kill, and you decide to go for a walk by yourself in, in one of our local parks. And as you're walking along one of the trails, you round the corner, and, and right around the corner, in the middle of the trail, you see a dragon. Can you imagine if that, well, that would never happen. Imagine it did happen. And you hear his deep, rumbling growl. You see his sharp claws. You smell the smoke of his fiery breath. And you feel the roughness of his tongue when he comes and licks you like a puppy. He's a friendly dragon, all right? Don't want to scare anyone this morning. And after that, you race home and you tell your family and your friends what you saw, smelled, heard, and felt. I saw a dragon in the park. No one's going to believe you. Surprise. Now, you know what you saw. You know what you felt. You know what you heard. You know what you smelled. But no one else believes you. You would be They'll think you're joking, or, or maybe that the bologna sandwich you had for lunch just had a little, some bad mayonnaise on it or something like that. They'll think your eyes were playing tricks on you. In our scientific age, we're very suspicious of, but yet dependent on, personal experience, aren't we? Aren't we? I mean, even in a court of law, even in a criminal justice setting, 
Uh, eyewitness testimony remains one of the most valuable pieces of evidence in a, in a trial. And yet, scientists have shown how a person can remember an event completely differently from what actually happened. So, uh, the truth of the matter is that, that, that personal experience remains an important part of our lives, and yet we're suspicious of it from time to time. And th- the same is true in our Christian lives, as we're going to see in our passage this morning. I grew up in a Christian environment where we were warned not to make too much of personal experience, and probably rightly so. Uh, we uh, sometimes, as Baptists, it seems like we want to downplay personal experience because we're so afraid that we're going to deceive ourselves into thinking that it's all about personal experience. We talk about how God answers prayer, but we're quick to add that God's answer may be no or wait. We emphasize the importance of discerning God's will for our career or which church we should should join or who we should marry, and and yet we understand that we need to use wisdom and, and biblical principles that God gives us to make those sorts of decisions. We understand that as well. We have a suspicion of personal experience. We don't want to trust it more than we should. And yet, as our passage this morning is going to show, personal experience, the experience of God, is a necessary part of the Christian life. It's absolutely critical that we experience God. Let me show you what I mean. Look at at verse uh, 24 here in in 1 John chapter 3. John says, Whoever keeps his, that's God's commandments, abides in God, and God in him. So if you were to take some time to to read through this passage on your own, read through the entire chapter, you'd find that a Christian is someone who genuinely, really, directly experiences God. Someone who has an unmediated experience of the divine. That's what a Christian is. John's giving us uh, here several evidences of, of how we ourselves individually can know that we belong to God, that we're genuinely believers. Uh, For example, he says in verse 16, or I'm sorry, going going back up to verse 11 and, and following, he talks about how a true, genuine Christian is someone who really loves the brothers. He's really someone who loves the family of God in Christ. Later on, he talks about how even though our heart condemns us from time to time, even though we find our conscience pricking us on the inside, that a true Christian is not someone who relies on himself, but really trusts in Jesus for his relationship with God. And and it's clear that what he's teaching here in verse 24 is that it's just those evidences that are in view. It's those people who keep his commandments, that is, those people who keep the commandment to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to love the brothers who abide in God, and God abides in them. So these are the objective proofs that a person is truly born again, or at least there are some of them. There are probably several more. But there's this subjective element as well, isn't there? There's a subjective element to our experience of God and our knowledge that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ as a Christian. This experiential facet, an inner witness. We can know that we are genuinely in Christ, not only because we confess Christ with our mouth, we believe in Jesus, Not only because we love the family of God in Christ, but because we actually experience God. And John's going to explain for us how we can know what exactly that means and what it looks like in each of our lives. Okay, so what John's going to do is he's going to show us what it means 
when he says that whoever keeps God's commandments abides in God and God in him. Now, before we move on, let me ask you this. Is there any familiarity with John's language here? Does that ring a bell? Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. What is all this talk of abiding? Where does that come from? Well, John's recalling the words of Jesus himself. Jesus was the one who introduces this type of language that fateful Thursday evening in the upper room. With John sitting right there next to him, Jesus tells his disciples, John 15, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here in in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, all John is doing is reminding us of the words that Jesus himself had already spoken to his disciples years and years before. We need to abide in God. We need to be connected vitally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like a, a vine cannot produce grapes unless, or, or a branch can't produce grapes unless it's connected to the vine, It can't grow, it can't draw the nourishment out of the root unless it's connected into the vine. So are we with Christ. And just like that branch would just fall off onto the ground unless it were connected and supported by the vine, the same is true of us if we are not supported by the Lord Jesus. We need to be connected and draw our very spiritual life and stability and security from Christ. So on the one hand, John is simply reminding us of what Jesus has already taught. But on the other hand, we're practically left wondering, what does this mean? What does it mean when John says that God is abiding in us, or that we're abiding in God? What does that mean? What does that actually look like? And and he's thought about this. He's already thought about this question that we're going to have, because he tells us in verse 24 at the end, by this we know, that we abide in God and he in us. How, does he, how do we know? What does it say? By the spirit he has given us. It's by God's spirit that we know that we abide in God and he in us. We have the spirit. So what is a Christian? A Christian, if you read through earlier in the passage and really throughout the entire letter of 1 John, a Christian is someone who loves the brothers. He loves the family of God in Christ. A Christian is someone who really genuinely trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation. A Christian, in this passage we're going to see, is someone who experiences God through the presence of the indwelling spirit of God. That's what a Christian is. Now at this point, before we explain and talk about what exactly that means, I want to ask, do you know what it's like to experience the presence and the power of God the Spirit? Do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to abide in God? Do you experience God? I I wonder maybe this morning if there are some of you who know what that's like, but for one reason or another this morning, you feel far from God. And uh, I want you to know that uh, God, 
God does not want that to be the normal for you, okay? God's spirit uh, abides in us. It's normal for us to experience God. So let's pay close attention to what it is that John is teaching us here. Let's think about the profoundness of that idea. If you are a believer, if you're genuinely converted, if you're someone who belongs to God in Christ, you can experience a direct fellowship with God. You can experience the the one who inhabits eternity abides in you. The one who dwells in the high and holy place also dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly heart. Isaiah 57. The individual who created everything, crashing waves, pealing thunder like we all heard this morning. The gentle breeze, uh, red raspberry, the taste buds that we use to taste the raspberry. He made it all and he abides in you if you're a believer and you in him. Now if that doesn't change everything, that's because we need to grow in our understanding of what we actually have. Notice as well the Trinitarian nature of what John is saying here. What, what words is John drawing off of? Words of Jesus Christ, right? This, these are the words of Jesus. And yet John says, you're abiding in God. God the Father. And how do we know that we abide in God? By the presence of his Spirit in us. So what we experience as believers is the direct communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are communing with the triune God as believers. Notice as well that this is true of every single solitary believer, every Christian. There's no second blessing, no sense in which you can be a Christian and then take your Christianity to a higher level. This is true of every Christian. John says, whoever keeps his commandments, that is, verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. So whoever does that abides in God. Whoever's a real, genuine believer, it doesn't matter who he is, what his name is, uh, whether, he's a, whether he's a girl or she's a, uh, whether he's a guy or she's a girl, it doesn't matter. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you experience God. It's not something just for the super spiritual. I want to make uh, just one additional observation be- before we move on in this passage, and, and that's this. The idea that the presence of the Spirit is proof that we genuinely belong to God and that the gospel is true is something that's taught throughout the New Testament. I'm going to read a couple of passages that show that that's the case. Consider, for example, the writings of Paul. He says in in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I don't need any kind of resume, I don't need a credential, because the message that I'm preaching has changed you. We can see that the Spirit of God is at work in your lives. It's proof that God's message, the gospel, is the truth. 
Listen to what he says to the Ephesians. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, I'm giving you the gospel, and it's a promise that you're going to experience eternal life, that you'll be in the heavenly places with God in Christ, and the promise of that, the guarantee of that, is the Spirit that he's given to you that you experience right now. We're listening to what he says in, in Galatians chapter 3. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, what Paul is asking them is, you know you received the Spirit. Think about how you did. Was it through working and pleasing God with your works and following the rules of the law? Or was it by the gospel? You already have the Spirit. That's the proof. That's the evidence that what you have is a genuine relationship with God in Christ. So, in every case, the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer is shown to be a sort of litmus test of the genuineness of one's faith. So, the experience of the Spirit is a vital component component of the Christian life and is necessary if we're going to know whether we truly belong to God. So, we know that a genuine believer is someone who genuinely experiences the Spirit of God. That's someone who abides in God and God abides in him. But there's another problem. How do we know that what we're experiencing is the Spirit of God? Have you wondered that? Would you believe me if I told you I had a a vision last night? You were all in the vision. And uh, in my vision, anyone in this room who gave me $500 was healed of a disease or had a financial windfall or uh, was freed from conflict among their family and friends, would you believe me if I told you I had that sort of vision? That the Spirit gave me the vision, that he told me to tell you that each of you should give me $500? Would you believe that? Now, I might not be very convincing, but there are some people who are much more convincing than I could be. And, And their message boils down to essentially the same thing, isn't it? How can you tell me I don't have the Spirit of God? I had this vision, and it told me that that you need to give me some money. In other words, what we have to do is we have to discern what the true Spirit of God and the experience of God, the Spirit, from false spirits, don't we? I can't just get up here and, and tell you something and say, well, this is what the Spirit of God told me without you having any discernment at all, without you questioning and examining whether that, in fact, is the case. And John anticipates this problem as well because he tells us, look what he says in chapter 4 and verse 1. He understands that we're having this problem. He says in 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world in other words John understands that there are going to be people who use the spirit of God that kind of religious language in order to come to you and say hey I have a message for you from God and it's really them trying to take advantage of you that's, he understands that that's going to be the case. And the truth of the matter is we can even do that to ourselves. We need to test the spirits so that we are not drawn away from the true message of the Lord Jesus Christ toward a false message, whether that's from ourselves or from someone else. The world is filled with 
hucksters and snake oil salesmen who would love to draw you away from the true, true teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's apparent that they're not acting on their own. There are spirits, in many cases, that are influencing people to teach these kind of false messages. It's not just the people, it's the spiritual forces behind them that we need to discern. Well, the original recipients of this letter were worn down by just such a, uh, a threat. Uh, it's evident if you were to read the letter, uh, particularly chapter 2, we find that the churches to whom John is ministering here are being plagued by a sort of false teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, it was, uh, it's a little difficult for us to understand, um, but they were teaching things about the identity of the Lord Jesus and about his nature that were contrary to Scripture. And so this means that each of us is going to need to test the spirits to see whether they are from God or whether they are from the world. We need to be able to discern the spirit of truth from the spirit of error. So knowing that an experience of God is part and parcel of being a truly born-again Christian, and knowing that we experience God directly as Christians by means of his indwelling presence through the Spirit, John is going to teach us how to discern the Spirit of God from the deceptive spirit of the world. That's what he's doing here in the opening chapter, or the opening verses of chapter 4. And so what follows here in, in chapter 4, verses 2 and following, are three ways that John is going to teach us to discern and to test the Spirit's so that we can know that what we're experiencing and what we're being taught from is truly the spirit of God and not the spirit of error. Look what he says in uh, verse 2. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So first of all, consider with me the content of the spirit's teaching, the content of the Spirit's teaching. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's it. Now it's clear from chapter 2 that the churches to whom John was writing were being taught contrary to this very message. Uh, they were being drawn away from the truth by a group of false teachers that John calls antichrists. Okay, You can read for yourself in chapter 2, verse 22, for example. He sums up their teaching. They deny the Father and the Son. In other words, what these teachers are calling into question is the doctrine of the incarnation, the idea that the eternal, only begotten Son of God actually came in the flesh and took upon himself the, the nature of humanity. That's what these people are denying. Uh, the apostles, uh, following the claims of Jesus himself, taught that Jesus was fully God and fully man, God come in the flesh. Now, for us... That may, be, uh, that, that may seem like a, a little bit of theological minutia, something that is talked about uh, by people in seminary and not really any real people. Uh, but back then, it was a topic of, of discussion all over the place. Uh, the identity, the idea that Jesus could be both God and man was a major problem. It was reprehensible to the cultured classes of the Roman Empire. They, they rejected the idea outright. Uh, and you can find this if you go back to the writings of people living at that time. I'll give you an example. This was a man, a Roman intellectual by the name of Celsus. Uh, this is what he had to say about the incarnation. He says, what could be the purpose of such a visit to earth by God? To find out what is taking place among humans? Does he not know everything? 
Or is it perhaps that he knows, but is incapable of doing anything about evil unless he does it in person? So you can kind of hear that Celsus, capturing the spirit of the age, is mocking the Christian idea that God, the Son of God, became a man. This was an idea that was just unfashionable during that time. And so the idea that Jesus of Nazareth, a poor craftsman from Galilee, could be the eternal Son of God incarnate made no sense to people in that society. So in order to soften the blow, in order to make what they called Christianity more palatable to the masses, there were people who would come in and they would teach a a softer version of the identity of Jesus Christ. They would say something like, no, 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 Jesus Christ isn't the Son of God. He became the Son of God for a short time. Or they would say something like, well, Jesus... Yes, God, God the Son exists, and yes, we can perceive him in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus of Nazareth, it just seemed like he was born like as a human being. He's not actually a human being. He just appeared that way. And, and what seemed to be innocuous, innocent teaching about Jesus that's just a little bit off from center was actually something that was condemning these people, because if you think about it, if God the God the Son didn't come to earth, then we have no reason to believe that we can be forgiven of our sins. If God the Son didn't come as a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, we would have no hope that we could be represented by by a perfect person who had kept God's law. There's no hope. We would have to be standing on our own. You see, you cannot have the gospel of Jesus Christ without the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And yet these people were were teaching this false doctrine. And John says, the Spirit of God is not going to teach that. The Spirit of God, if it comes really from God, is going to teach you that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That God's Son, the second person of the Trinity, actually came and took on a human nature. You know, I, I fear we have very little stomach for this today. I, even as I'm talking about these doctrinal matters, I can see, you know, some people are like, oh, this seems a little bit heavy on a Sunday morning. I only had one cup of coffee. Come on, give me a break. We have, a li- we have very little stomach for doctrinal teaching. And, and John says this is of critical importance. Uh, give me something practical, we say. Tell me how to raise my children or invite a friend to church. Teach me what the Bible says about money or politics, but don't say too much about money or politics. All this doctrine, this talk about the Trinity and the Incarnation, it's completely irrelevant to my life. What does it really have to do with me? But friend, if you're tempted to say that, you're really thinking from the wrong perspective. Uh, Instead of thinking... How is this doctrine, how is this teaching that John's bringing out here in, in 1 John chapter 4, how is it relevant to me? What we should be asking is, how am I relevant to God? God made all things for his own glory. Everything exists for him. We exist for him, not he for us. And so instead of asking God, how can you be relevant to me, we should know God and, and, and ask, how am I bringing glory to him? Besides, knowing God is the most important thing we can know, as Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, 
that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What could be more practical than eternal life? Life that lasts forever. Life in the new heavens and the new earth. And Jesus Christ says, if you want that, you need to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So the most practical thing that we can do is know God. We need to understand these things that John's John's teaching. You know, for centuries, Christians faced intense persecution from Roman authorities. Uh, Shortly after the apostles died, actually many of them were martyred, Uh, but shortly after they died, the uh, Roman Empire began to implement a policy of persecution throughout the entire empire. People would be uh, brought in before the magistrate, and they would be tested. They would say, hey, just here's a little bit of incense. Take this over to the altar and uh, offer it to the uh, image, the effigy of the emperor. And, of course, Christians don't worship idols. They worship the one true God. And so they would not do it. And they were killed. Many thousands were killed in this way. And and there's writings about it. You have communication back and forth between one Roman governor and the emperor and uh, various other leaders within the empire. Later on, several hundred years later, uh, the authorities began to realize that these Christians, many of them were not changing their mind because they had no fear of death. They knew that they were going to live again. And so they changed their tactics. And instead of just killing them when they refused to sacrifice to the emperor, emperor, they would torture them. And they would try, you know, I'm going to torture you here if you don't just offer a little bit of incense to the emperor. And so by the time Emperor Constantine finally declared Christianity legal in A.D. 313, 300 years after the birth of Christ with the Edict of Milan, many pastors of these large churches, had, they were walking around just bent over from the torture, scars all over their body from the burnings. Uh, shortly thereafter, the emperor summoned more than 300 pastors and deacons to a council in the city of Nicaea. It's a small city in what is now northwest Turkey. Now, this was an historic event for, for lots of different reasons, but can you imagine going through all your life, growing up in a family, growing up in an environment where believing in the Lord Jesus Christ could get you killed or tortured or both? And then all of a sudden, the emperor of, of the, the ruler of the world, your known world, says, no, no, we're going to call you all together and we're going to talk about some things. What would you gather to talk about as pastors? I mean, it's the first time you can do this in the open. It's the first time you can do this legally. What do you think they would talk about? How to grow their church now that Christianity was legal? What sort of music they might like to see? You know what they discussed? The nature of Jesus Christ. The nature of the Son of God. They talked about doctrine. Because they knew... And they understood that they had to understand the Savior. They had to know God. They had to know what the Bible taught about the identity of the Son of God. But notice not only the content of the Spirit's teaching, but also the counterfeits of the Spirit's teaching. Look with me in verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus 
is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world, and all the world listens to them. So every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The true spirit of God is going to teach the true doctrine of Jesus Christ to us, but there are other spirits, there are counterfeits out there, and they're going to teach lies. They're not going to teach that Jesus is from God. What kind of spirit is this? John calls it the spirit of Antichrist. What does that mean? Uh, Maybe you've heard that term before, Antichrist. I remember reading about the Antichrist in uh, the famous Left Behind series when I was growing up uh, by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins in which a little-known leader named Nikolai Carpathia rises from obscurity to become the world's leader, and he takes over the world's religion and the government of the world, and he oppresses people uh, who become believers after the rapture of the church carried away all true Christians in the blink of an eye. Uh, I've heard people say that that, uh, George W. Bush was the Antichrist, or that President Obama was the Antichrist, or I'm sure people are saying that President Trump is the Antichrist. I mean, there's all kinds of people who uh, are making these predictions about the Antichrist. Who is this guy? He must be this powerful political leader. But that's actually not what John has in mind when he talks about the spirit of Antichrist here. Uh, I think his focus is elsewhere. The idea of an Antichrist is a person who both stands in place of and opposed to the real Christ. This is who Jesus warned about in Matthew 24. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So what Jesus warned about were these false Christs. Hey, there's Christ. Oh, there there he is. He's over there. That's what he was talking about. And these people were drawing drawing believers away from the true doctrine of Jesus Christ toward a false Christ. And in this way, they were capturing the spirit of Antichrist, okay? They were teaching false doctrine about the identity of the Son of God. And John says that this spirit is in the world, and it holds sway among those who are from the world. These people who say, well, you know, Jesus was a great guy. I don't really buy into the Bible. I don't buy into what the Bible says or what the church teaches. But I do like Jesus. It's not, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus that we're taught about by the Spirit of God. It's a false Christ so many times. In other words, false teaching is, is not always easy to spot. It's seductive. It's appealing to our worldly desires. It scratches us where we itch. So we have to be all the more diligent. So John is telling us that there's this spirit of Antichrist that's out there that's drawing us away from the true teaching of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not only is there content of the Spirit's teaching, but there are counterfeits of the Spirit's teaching that we need to be watching out for. And finally, notice with me the confirmation of the Spirit's teaching. Look what he says in verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice what he says. We are from God. John is telling us, you want to know whether God really abides in you? You want to know whether you really experience the, the spirit of God in Christ? 
You want to know if you really have an experience with God? Look at us. Who's us? The apostles. These are the people that he talks about in chapter 1, verse 1. What our hands have handled, what we have heard with our ears, what our eyes have seen, that's what we're delivering over to you. We have walked with this person. We know Jesus personally. We are from God, and those who listen to us, listen to God. Have you had experiences of God? Have you experienced the presence of God? Try walking with the Son of God along the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Try fishing with him in Capernaum. Try uh, en- entering his empty tomb. Try climbing the Mount of Transfiguration. These people have had experiences of God. They've walked with him physically. They've eaten with him. They've talked with him. So if you really want to know whether the spirit that you are experiencing, whether the spirit that you are listening to is a spirit from God rather than a spirit of error, then you need to compare that teaching to the teaching of the apostles. These are the men who really experienced God in Christ. These are God's eyewitnesses of the majesty and the glory and the identity of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how you can tell whether you're a Christian. Do you believe what the apostles believe? So friends, just to summarize, what, we're, what John is teaching here is that we as believers, genuine believers, need to experience the presence and the power of God the Spirit. We need to abide in God and He in us. Uh, we need to know and experience God's power. We need to pray for that. God, please help me to experience and know and, and be in communion with you. But we also need to discern what that means. We need to discern the spirits. We need to compare the teachings that we believe with the teachings of the apostles. So I think that practically means several things. Number one, do you know what is taught in this book? Do you care what is taught in this book? See, we we have experiences in our lives that are valuable, but if they contradict what's in this book, then they're not valid. They're not true. They're not to be trusted. We need to understand the experiences of God's chosen eyewitnesses, the apostles. As John says, hey, what we're delivering to you is what our hands have touched. We have touched him. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've talked with him. Do your, does your knowledge of the scripture correspond to the importance of what is taught in this book? Another thing I want to just call on you to do is maybe you're sitting here uh, this morning and for one reason or another, you've never experienced God. You never have. You've maybe heard teaching about Jesus. Maybe you've sat in church. Maybe you've learned some songs or verses about God, but you've never experienced God. What What I'm here to tell you this morning is that When we open the scriptures, we are hearing from God. And I want to call you this morning and invite you to open the scriptures with me and to truly consider what God has said and to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to truly experience the the confirming witness of the Spirit of God in your life. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and, you know, you've just been confused about Christianity, you've been confused about the teachings of the Bible, and I just want to invite you to 
open the scriptures with any member of the church here. Find me after the service, find one of the deacons, one of the members of the church, and just say, hey, can you talk to me about that? In a moment, we'll have an opportunity for you to do that. Uh, But maybe you're sitting here and you are a believer. And you say, I I do believe this and and I want to experience the the presence of God's spirit, but you haven't in a while. And I, I would just invite you to renew your commitment to the teachings of the apostles and the scriptures. To renew your commitment to following what God has commanded here in the Bible. Because that's, that's where it starts. Not just with our personal experience, but with the experience of those who walked and talked with Jesus. So let's pray and let's ask that God would help us to truly experience and abide in him as believers. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the clear teaching that that helps us in our weakness and in our confusion to know the difference between the spirit of error and the spirit that comes from you. I pray that you would help us each to grow in our discernment of your spirit. I pray that you'd you'd help each of us to grow in our understanding of, of the teachings of the apostles. And Lord, if there are any here who have never truly experienced your presence through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel and that you would show them yourself through your word and through the fellowship of the saints. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.